All right, grab your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 1 with me this evening. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 46 through 55, the song of Mary, asking the question, what child is this? Next week we'll be back in our study of Colossians, but for this evening, being Christmas, we want to look at this particular text. Luke chapter 1, so let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, these are the words of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in sending your beloved Son in order to redeem all of creation. We have gathered this Lord's Day to look to your word, so would your Holy Spirit open our hearts so that we might receive it through Christ Jesus our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. Well, given that today is the Lord's Day, and given that our celebration of the birth of Christ falls on the same day, I thought it prudent that we should pause from our exegetical study of Colossians uh, in order to focus our hearts and our minds on the incarnation of Christ our Lord. That is, after all, why we celebrate Christmas. It is good and proper for Christ's church to acknowledge the historical circumstances uh, which encircle this divine transaction. While many Christians desire for, especially today, many Christians desire for Christ to be put back into Christmas, uh, the reality is there is still much confusion on just what they mean by this. Um, do, do, does this mean that we get annoyed when someone says happy holidays to us? Anybody say that to you uh, in the past couple of weeks? That happened to me. I was deeply, deeply offended. <laughs> Note the sarcasm. Uh, or is, this, is it a situation where we get angry at a certain popular coffee company for a certain cup design? Is that what we're after? Or are we simply trying to gain some sort of sentimentalism back that we once had? What do we mean by that? What do people mean by that? And I, I'll just say here on the front end, the truth is uh, Christ doesn't need to be put back into Christmas any more than he does what we call Easter Sunday, any more than he does anything else. Christ holds all things together, remember? And why don't we need to put him anywhere? Well, because the nature of the thing itself rests on the completed work of Christ in history and not on our social ambitions. So Christ is no further gone from Christmas than he ever was. That's by definition what it is. It's Christ. So the heart of the matter does not change. And if we will not have an evangelical posture towards the culture with a robust, kingdom-oriented gospel to boot, then the culture will inexorably try to express Christmas in terms of some cultural apostasy. 
So you will see, a, if, if we don't have the posture that we're supposed to have, then why would we expect the world to have the posture that we think it should have? And the reason is, let me say it in, in a different way, Christ doesn't need to be put back into Christmas, Christ needs to be put in the hearts and minds of image bearers. That is the, that is the truth. And culture is downstream from hearts, so wherever the hearts are directed, that's where the culture goes. And so when you see uh, Christmas, and you see it being um, assailed rather violently or vigorously, as it were, uh, then we, need to, we have a heart problem. We know that that's the root issue of it all. Now, the way we celebrate, celebrate Christmas ought to be informed by our eschatological presuppositions. What do we think about the future? What is God doing in history? What are, they, what are, our, what are we presupposing about uh, what, what Christ intends to do with the world and what he intends to do with history? When we, we have the audacity to sing that he, he's making his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So wherever the curse went, the blessings are flooding that area. Boy, what, a, what an audacious thing, right? What a ridiculous thing. We, we actually believe that Jesus is going to transform the world, that he's the savior of the world. It seems a little out of sorts. So let me ask, that, let me ask a question a little bit differently. What sort of expectations should we have in light of what we find in the Christmas story itself? What expectations? Um, eschatology is the engine of hope. If you don't have hope, it's probably because you don't have a good eschatology. Eschatology is the engine of hope. So what do we expect or what do we hope to find here when we look at the scriptures and we almost put ourselves back in that time with Mary and Joseph and the angel Gabriel and the shepherds and the wise men and, and Herod the dragon looking to, to exert himself? Uh, what do we expect? What, what, what expectations did Zechariah and Elizabeth have? What expectation, what, ex, what, what eschatological hope did Simeon and Anna have? What about Mary and Joseph? What about Israel? What about Herod? What about Pilate? What were they thinking? Now, the social, cultural, political, and even the historical circumstances in, in first century Israel gives us a glimpse into the dynamic nature of the Son of God taking on human flesh. The Son of God was born into a context, a history, a social order. He was born in, into a culture. So it helps, I think it helps us see that in order, uh, well, we need to see what we see there in the, in the history, but we also need to be able to interpret it. We need to know how to, what do we do with this? Now, reading the, the Magnificat, that's the Song of Mary, helps us gauge the significance of this moment and in turn helps us to know how to live in light of the kingdom of Christ. So eschatologically informed, Mary's song here is saturated in scripture and it provides us with a thoroughly biblical answer to this question, what child is this? What child is this? Let's consider our text. It's helpful to know that Luke presents us with a slight dilemma from the very beginning. All the way even back in the previous page, you might want to turn there just for a second and you can see what I mean. There's a dilemma at the very beginning. We have Gabriel, the angel, announcing two different births to two related mothers, neither of which were expecting any sort of progeny, any sort of children. Two mothers, two situations, 
neither of them expecting anything. Elizabeth was like Sarah back in the Old Testament. She was far too, far too old to have a child. And Mary, in her situation, hadn't yet consummated the marriage with Joseph. So she is a young teenage girl. So opposite ends of the spectrum here. Far too old, far too young, it seems like, especially given this, the, uh, the circumstances. Now, a, a quick side note on Mary and Joseph, because I want to clarify something that perhaps is misunderstood. The betrothal was a legally binding marriage in Jewish law. And it isn't exactly like the engagement period today, what we call an engagement period and then you get married, uh, though there are some somewhat similar things. The husband at this point still lived at home on his own, well, either at home with his parents or on his own if he was in the family business, had his own place, whatever. Uh, the wife at that point lived with her family. And it was a time of purification. It was a time of holiness separation from one another for the sake of self-examination and righteousness. If the husband died before consummating the marriage, the betrothed wife was considered a widow, and she would have had the legal standing of a widow. Now, during this time, there was no sexual contact, which is what made the situation with Mary and Joseph somewhat precarious. Speaking of which, I, I don't think Traditionally, we just sort of think, oh, Joseph thought maybe she was with someone else, and oh, well, I'm going to have to put her away quietly. And I don't think that's actually the case. I don't think we have to assume that Joseph believed that another man was involved in this situation when he found out that Mary was with child. We're told in Matthew 119 that Joseph was a righteous man. And we can assume that since the angel told Joseph in a dream, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Remember that. We can assume that Joseph may have already understood the pregnancy to be a divine appointment. Why else would the angel say not to fear? Meaning what had him potentially shook up and scared? I, I think that we're in a situation where the two knew each other quite well. Mary and Joseph knew each other quite well. Uh, perhaps their families knew each other too. Uh, that it wouldn't be all that uncommon for families. Not like in a full, when we think of today, like an arranged marriage, we tend to think of some of the, uh, you know, outlying versions of that where people just meet, show up that day and get married. They never met each other. Um, not in that sense, but arranged in the sense that perhaps their families knew each other quite well. They, maybe they went to synagogue together. Uh, you know, I... I I think in Joseph's mind, there was no possible way that she would dare commit adultery against him. Now, you know, take that for what you will. But Joseph, we know, he didn't want to bring reproach upon her as an alleged adulteress, so he wanted to divorce her quietly. Uh, Joseph being, of course, a righteous man, and he, in this sense, is going above and beyond what the law required. That was his decision, of course. So Joseph's suspicion about the situation, however, we know, was clarified. The Holy Spirit, being the one who, with the power of Almighty God, caused the eternal Son of God to become a zygote, a zygote in the young virgin's womb. So, incredible story, incredible for uh, Mary and Joseph in this situation. And Joseph, we know, was told, you know, don't be afraid to take Mary. She, she's your wife. And Jesus is then adopted by Joseph and we know later on they actually had other children. 
So the, the domestic encounter, though, fast forward to Mary and Elizabeth, the domestic encounter between them shows us the importance early on in Luke's gospel of John and Jesus together. John would prepare the way of the Messiah. Jesus himself would, in fact, be the Messiah upon whose shoulders the government of all things was placed from the womb, Isaiah 9.6. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. That is what Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 33. Jesus is his name. That is his name. His name is Jesus. He shall save God's people from their sins. Upon arriving to Elizabeth's home, Mary traveled to see her cousin, uh, see her uh, relative, after a 70-mile journey. That's a long walk. It's about 45 miles from Warrington to D.C., so keep going well into Maryland. I mean, no one needs to go to Maryland, but, you know, in this case... Can anything good come from Maryland? Upon arriving there, this journey, the preborn John, you'll remember, is inside the protection and safety of the womb. And in verse 44, we, lean, uh, John, we learn that John leaped for joy. And also, the Holy Spirit overcame Elizabeth, too, in that moment, giving her a prophecy. And she gives a prophecy in verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So incredibly, John, the preborn little boy, leaped for joy in the womb at the sound of Mary's greeting. She just came in and said, hey, everybody, I'm here. And all of a sudden, there's this moment of the Holy Spirit just saturating the place. And the Holy Spirit overcame not only Elizabeth, but her child as well. So what happens when the Spirit involves himself in their most basic greeting and salutation? Mary in this case, empowered by the Holy Spirit as well, bursts out into song. And I was reflecting on this this week. If you were to burst out in song because of some enjoyment, how much scripture would come out? How much would come out? Because, I mean, we know, we know some of the sad songs of the movie Frozen quite well. Would you run to the phrase, let it go? Or would you run to scripture? Just a thought I had this week. If you were to burst out in song, how much scripture would actually come out? Now, Mary's song is strikingly similar to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah, in a similar circumstance as Mary, praised God for utilizing her for a special task. Hannah and Mary, both rather socially insignificant individuals, they were both chosen by God for a very special mission. Mary is considered blessed because she believed what Gabriel had said. Gabriel had revealed this. She believed it. She exercised faith. And what do we find Mary saying about this whole thing? Again, what child is this? What child is this? Now, the opening line in Latin reads, Magnificat anima mea domina, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the title of the song, the Magnificat. Verse 46, Mary's spirit magnifies or intensifies the Lord in her own heart. Not that God can be made bigger ontologically by us. Uh, my soul magnifies the Lord as if you can make the being of God larger, somehow more expansive. Mary opens the doors that the spirit of God may fill her heart. That is what faith does. Faith opens your soul to the blessings of God. 
To magnify God then is to enlarge God in our hearts, to be more keen upon who he is, to be more sensible and uh, realizing the blessing that he is in our hearts. Uh, Her spirit, verse 47, her spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. From the depths of her being, the core of who she is, rejoicing pours forth. Dancing in the language here, dancing in the heart. Uh, And you've all been there. You've heard great, exciting news, and you could jump for joy. Uh, I don't, you know, I I enjoy times when I can sing along in my car. (laughs) I don't want to annoy anybody else, so it's better that I do it there. But there are times that, you know, you feel a sense of excitement and a song comes to mind, or maybe you're listening something to something and, wow, like I, I, you just have to sing. And that's really what we have here is there's so much joy in the heart that it, it can only come out through the vocal cords in the mouth. She's dancing in her heart and that comes out in her mouth. This phrase here, God, my savior, it's a familiar phrase. It's a familiar concept in the Old Testament. Habakkuk, 3, Habakkuk 3.18 is, is one example. But far, far from being a perfect woman, Mary calls on God, and he calls her his Savior. She's, of course, she being the recipient of such a glorious work of salvation. It's amazing, uh, and this is why we differ with the papists. Mary models faith. She models faith for us. She is never to be the object of our worship. She knew, she knew who she was, a sinner in need of grace. In verse 48... Mary identifies herself as being a humble slave. Uh, some of your translations choose servant. I, I like the LSB here with the, uh, word, the word slave being translated that way. She's a humble slave. Mary is Israel. If you think about the condition of Mary, think about the condition of Israel. Mary is Israel in a humble estate at this point, brought very low. Ro- Rome is ruling over Israel. Um, Mary is rather insignificant. That Israel is insignificant. Um, both are childless without a Messiah. Mary, in her, in her state, before the Holy Spirit conceived in, in her womb, Mary was childless, and Israel was childless. They didn't have the promised Davidic king. They, too, were awaiting for it. So darkness, darkness with no light is essentially what Isaiah tells us. This is Mary, this is Israel, darkness, no light. Uh, abject Mary is of no importance, yet in her weakness we find strength, and, and we find the strength of God. Generations will count me blessed, she says here, indicating, of course, the significance of the event and not herself. Generations are going to count her blessed, not because she was this uh, perfect, awesome person, uh, though we believe both of them to be righteous. She's not talking about herself, but what, what the event is. Why will they call her blessed? Well, because, verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me. The mighty one has done great things for me. And because his name is holy. She praises God because God is the mighty one. He's the holy one. She has done, God has done something amazing for her. So God has done great, a great thing here for the sake of his holiness. Now, holiness in Scripture is a threefold declarative. Usually, you don't ever find the Bible saying God is gracious, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. You find in Scripture, God is holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God. And holiness is that threefold declarative, and it expresses the unending purity and the glory of God, the radiance of His splendor. 
His mercy is unending. By the way, the word mercy in this chapter is used five times. His mercy is unending. And all generations experience this, particularly those, in verse 50, who fear him. Those who fear God experience his mercy. The God-fearers, the humble and hungry, the meek and the poor, they receive this mercy. So the prerequisite here for deliverance, to being delivered from your situation, to being delivered from your state of sin, the prerequisite to deliverance is the humble admission that one needs deliverance. How could you be saved if you don't understand your need of salvation? How can you understand your need for righteousness if you haven't looked at the law to see your unrighteousness? How can you see your need to be rescued from the depravity of our sins if we haven't seen the depravity of our sins? As a consequence to this, the proud, in verse 51, are scattered. The proud are scattered. The work of God in Mary's life with this child is a mighty deed done with God's arm, his arm. That's in 51 also. When God decides to act, certain things happen. Namely, the rulers who sit on their thrones are brought down while the humble ones are exalted. That's in verse 52. When God acts, certain things happen. The humble are brought, brought up, and guess who the exalted ones are? They're brought down. Which is to say, you'll remember Herod. Herod will be deposed and the poor family will be brought to honor and significance. You remember Mary and Joseph, they escaped to Egypt because Herod was breathing threats. And they escaped only to come back later after Herod uh, had died. Which, um, by the way, we were, t- we were talking about this this morning at our house. The, the, uh, <laughs> the beauty of the inescapability of God in our calendar. We mark time based upon Christ. Now, the, the issue is we uh, messed up that a little bit. Um, Jesus was actually born at least before 4 B.C. Now, it wasn't like the moment Jesus was born was zero. All right, zero. Year zero, we're going into year one now. You know, it wasn't like that. That was his, his you know, history. <laughs> history was shaped later on after the time of Christ in that way, how we keep time. Um, but Herod the Great had died in 4 B.C., so Jesus was born while he was still alive, so probably he was born in December of maybe 5 BC, and then the year four would have come along and Herod would have died that year. But, you know, we don't exactly know, but that's okay. So they escaped, and Herod's going to be deposed. The family comes back. Now, they are the royal family, not Herod. When we read this Christmas text, we have to remember that they are the royal family, and royalty doesn't come with all of this glitz and glamour. They were refugees leaving, essentially, a war zone, a war-torn area. They were the ones who had fled because of Herod. But they're the royal family. In in this case, when Mary talks about the, the rulers being brought down and the humble ones exalted, we have to remember that what's happening right now is the old order will cease and the new order of the sun will rise forth. Not only does time and calendar change, but the old way of doing, the old Adam the old sinful nature, the uncircumcised hearts, that is going away, the new order is coming. So the proud, the mighty, the rich, they never have the final say. The first will be last, the last will be first, so says Jesus. So when God decides to act, 
The, the hungry are filled with good things. Verse 53. The hungry are filled with good things. And the rich, along with their haughtiness, will be sent away empty-handed. So when God moves, cultures change. When God's arm and mercy stretches to the earth, the revolution has begun. Social reformation, in a true Christian sense, by the way, we're not talking about atheistic French revolutionary stuff, but social reformation in the Christian sense depends on the mercy and grace of God as he moves by the power of his Holy Spirit, which is why we have to continue to cry out to God to act in our nation today, because his arm has to move. His arm has to move. Tying herself to Israel's covenantal status, Mary says this in verse 54, He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. When God reaches down his arm, it is to pick us up, to dust us off, and to set us up on our feet. That is what the mercy of God is. We are groveling on the ground, unable to walk, unable to, to, get, to get food, and his arm reaches down, picks us up, dusts us off, sets us on our feet, and puts, puts us forward. God is truly our great helper. He is a great helper. Filled with Old Testament phrases and quotes and allusions, Mary's song here emphasizes that the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of Yahweh's work in Israel's history. Don't miss that last note there on verse 55. The coming of Jesus is the visitation of Yahweh to the earth. The Lord coming to his temple, says uh, Malachi. Jesus is the Savior of the world, yes, but before he's the Savior of the Gentiles and the rest of the world, we need to remember that he is Israel's Messiah. And noted in verse 55, this action in Mary's life, this moment in Mary's life, cannot be detached from the promises God made to Abraham hundreds and hundreds of years prior. So much scripture in the song. And she ends on this note, this, this moment, this me carrying this child by the power of the Holy Spirit goes all the way back to Abraham. Promises made to Abraham, check. Did God make a covenant with Abraham? He did, didn't he? And he promised that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and as the sand on the seashore. God made a promise to him, to a man who was too old to have kids with his wife, to a man who took matters into his own hands with his maidservant. God made a promise. And Mary says, promises to Abraham kept? Question <laughs> mark. Yes. Yes. This is a new work, but in a sense, it's actually an old work too. So then how shall we live this Christmas? The question I pose before us is, in, in this evening is, what child is this? That's the question. What child is this? In the text, we see that the coming of Jesus, born of the Virgin, is woven together with the redemptive plans of the triune Godhead. So history, we know history is moving a certain direction, and God is the one sanctifying it towards his own righteous ends. Now in the Christmas story, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has acted in a very powerful way, in an unconventional way, in something that hasn't been done before. Uh, remember, talking about this with the kids one day, uh, God makes humans four different ways. <laughs> and he does it from the dust, which was Adam, right? And then he does it from the rib of a, 
of an atom, that was Eve, of course. Um, and then, of course, there's just the natural progeny that comes about with a husband and wife, and uh, a male and a female in this, in this regard. And then you have this fourth category, the Holy Ghost, implanting within the Virgin Mary, taking the full deity of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and bringing him to the point of conceiving him in Mary. It's astounding. But history is, is moving somewhere. God is sanctifying it and pushing it along. And in the Christmas story, God acted. The same God acted. All, uh, all of the nations in the world would be blessed because of this moment. The very thing promised to Abraham. From creation to the patriarchs, to the judges and Ruth, from David and Solomon, down through the exiled Israelites like Daniel and Esther, all of redemptive history has now condescended to Mary, a poor young teenage virgin with no social standing, no political power, no claim to fame. All of this history came here. And, and where was all of this history going? The, the, the creation of all things, Abraham's calling, Joseph's time in Egypt, um, Moses in the Exodus, Moses in Sinai, uh, Deborah and Gideon, Samson, David, Solomon, the division of the kingdom of Israel because of sin, uh, the exile in Assyria with the northern kingdom. You had the Babylonian exile with the southern kingdom. You had Isaiah and the prophets, uh, exile to Susa of the Persians. Where was all of that history going from the very moment of creation? Where was it going? It was going here. It was going here. This moment, the history of Israel is the history of the world, and it all came down to this very moment when Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Not a, not a Times Square billboard announcement. <laughs> Nothing of the sort. No tweets about it. 2,000 years ago. No Facebook posts, no Instagram picture of the family. Imagine Mary taking a selfie next to the manger. Times were better. Different. <laughs> None of that. It was just this quiet, humble moment of a young virgin betrothed to Joseph, both of them seemingly righteous in the eyes of God, what we're told, all of that history came here at just a, a quiet time. The, the history of the world made its way to a small, insignificant hill country and into the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Mary says, hello. The Holy Spirit descends. The baby who, and uh, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, the baby leaps for joy. The history of the world descended into that moment. And the Holy Spirit gave us this word as a result. It's incredible. What child is this? What child is this? The child come from the Creator God, Father, Spirit, and the now incarnate Son. The child who is the Savior of Israel, Lord of all nations. He is the root of Jesse, David's son, and David's Lord. He counts those of a humble estate to be blessed by all generations. This child is the mighty one who is holy and does great things. He is utterly and gloriously merciful. Generation after generation, united by covenant, those who fear him are brought near to him. 
The child is an example of God's powerful arm working salvation for his people, delivering them from Egypt again and again and again. The proud are sent away by this God and this child because their hearts are exposed to be fraudulent. The arrogant rulers who act unbecomingly towards the weak, they are toppled and brought low. Herod is overthrown. Satan's sin and death is torn asunder. Statism is exposed to be the folly that it really is. And when these power-hungry, bloodthirsty tyrants are placed beneath the feet of Jesus, the humble are exalted. Christ truly sets the captives free, forgiving their sins and giving them his spirit. Christ, not Marx, deals with the lowly. What child is this? The child who would dare defy a tyrant like Herod. Herod, remember, wasn't thrilled to hear news of a newborn king. After all, he's the king. He wasn't thrilled, and in his insanity, his insecurity, and his lust, murdered in Bethlehem all the male children under two years old. The child, what child is this? The child is the king, and no one can stop him. Christmas is judgment against those who would dare to be their own little lords. The last thing you need in light of the Christmas story is to act like you're your own little lord. What child is this? He is the one who would command our attention. He is the one who would enlist our worship. And he is the one who would order our lives. The child became a man, and once a man, he exhibited wisdom and meekness and self-control and a powerful, self-forsaking obedience to the Father. And that obedience led him to the cross where once again he had set aside any glory that man could give him, and he instead poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. What child is this? The one who would be an atoning sacrifice, a meek Lord and King. Mary's song teaches us that the kingdom of God is wholly unlike the kingdoms of men. Christmas is heaven, heaven coming to earth it's a heaven coming to earth thing. It's not a man-made thing. It transcends man's reason, and thus it deals with man's reason. That, the, the, the insignificant Mary carried the significant king. But Mary was not proud. She wasn't brash, and she wasn't brazen. She was a humble slave of the God of all. The situation certainly had weariness. There was unsureness about it, a touch of desperation, packing up and fleeing to Egypt for a desperate situation, uh, longing for something future without much to go on in the present, right? Walking, sometimes struggling with walking by faith and not by sight. Christmas isn't always pomp and circumstance, which is why we can actually enjoy it. Because the world wants to enjoy Christmas on on its own volition without dealing with the fact that, yeah, the lights are beautiful, but there's darkness in the world. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, the, the apple pie is great. Yeah, the, the fellowship is great. The presents are wonderful. Yeah, but do you know why you can even give a present? Because God gives presents. That's, that's why. And, and giving out of self-sacrifice and not out of obligation or trying to impress someone, none of that was found when Mary was with child. It was simply a gift It was a gift to the world, and it was Jesus. He is that gift. So we can enjoy Christmas because we know the rest of the story. 
We know that God guided Mary and Joseph, protecting and leading and, and feeding them along the way like the good shepherd that God truly is. We know the work of Christ on the cross. We know the tomb is empty, even today. And, and we know the subsequent session of Christ now as the governor of all things. We know the rest of the story, but don't miss the raw nature of the Christmas story here. Christmas is a confrontation. It's a confrontation. It's up close. It's very personal. It is light impinging on darkness. It is deity rubbing shoulders with sinners, God taking on flesh. It is the kingdom showing up and confronting a world that can only meet it with sin and rebellion. Christmas means that God has quelled the insurrection. It's over. The ways of Cain, they're done. The ways of Esau, they're over. The, the, the ways of the, the insubordinate kings of Israel who fa had fallen away, that is over. That insurrection is done. Man trying to rehearse the Tower of Babel, it's done. It's quelled. So come and be forgiven. That's the gospel message. Come and find rest. Find living water and ever-sustaining bread. Come to this Christ. Christmas is an opportunity for the people of God to slow down, take a deep breath, and remember that God's power, God's mercy, and his might is always present. It's never hidden. Mary didn't know the magnitude. You know the song, Mary, did you know? And then the meme's like, no, she didn't. Well, she knew to some degree. She knew to some degree because she had an eschatological expectation. She knew Israel had waited for a Messiah. There, there needed to be deliverance. God would act. We must be faithful to him and pray to him and ask him to act and, and never stop asking him. We could learn a lot today. In other words, let me say it this way, Christmas must be practiced. We put in the work of trusting that God works all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. We practice our faith, our trust, our loyalty to the God who became a man. We remember that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God's Son. And when facing a certain level of adversity or angst, what comes to mind what comes to mind when you deal with the raw nature of sin and anxiety and depression and frustration? What comes to mind? Is it scripture or complaint? Is it scripture or complaint? Do we run like Mary to the word of God? We should. Christmas indeed drives us back to scripture. We look at the pain and sorrow of the world and we recall to mind that Jesus came to deal with it. That's really the answer. People struggle with that. You know, there's evil in the world, and if God's so good, why doesn't he deal with it? And we say, well, he, he did. He did deal with it. And he's actively dealing with it. He came to rescue the creation, to restore the creation, to renew the creation. And, and we go forth pointing this, pointing people to this Lord who is risen, who is supreme now. We point the world to the authority of God and his word. What sort of child is this? The merciful lamb who has atoned for our sins, been raised for our justification, and now shepherds and leads us as we fulfill the great calling of being God's covenant people in this world. So come to him, church, this Christmas, and bow down before him. 
Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your word. We thank you that Mary has illustrated for us the, the gloriousness of Scripture. We thank you that your spirit descended when he did in this moment to, to inspire Mary to song in this way. We thankful that, we're thankful that you're, you're faithful to us. You're merciful to us upon generation after generation. And you're especially so towards those who fear you. What joy there is to be in Christmas because light has conquered the darkness. There is, in fact, a dawn of hope found in this Son who now, you, Lord Jesus, are risen and ruling. As we recall to mind this evening as we fellowship together with a meal, as we speak with one another, and then as we go home and tuck ourselves in, Lord, what a, what a great day. A day to, to honor the fact that you, Father, sent your Son, Jesus, into this world. That there is, in fact, hope. That there is, in fact, grace and mercy for those who would call upon you and call upon you by faith. As we partake of communion and sing, uh, Father, would you be glorified in Christ the Son. In his name we pray. Amen.